Time fleeth on, youth soon is gone, not earthly may abide. Life seemeth vast, but may not last. It runs as runs the tide. Charles Godfrey Leland Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I'm your host. I'd like to thank everyone joining me this week. Um... I had a lot of new listeners last week, according to the analytics, and um, also even before the second episode I put up last week, um, we hit uh, the most downloads in a single month uh, for this October, and there are still a couple episodes left, so um, uh, I'd like to thank you all for listening, uh, my regular listeners, of course, and uh, any new people joining us. Um, and this week we are returning to our primary subject. We are going to do a historical episode, um, and then um, I'm hoping to have another two um, kind of bonus, uh, you know, fantasy Halloween type episodes um, to come out next week. Uh, I can't guarantee there will be two, but I want to have at least, uh, well, there will be at least one more. I hope I can get a second one done, so... Hopefully, uh, all my planning goes well, but we will see, uh, as we all know about the plans of mice and men. But for now, though, let's focus on uh, history, on today's subject. Um, So if you haven't done so, I do recommend going back and listening to the 10,000 BC episodes on the Americas, and the episode I talk about, you know, human migration into the region Uh, during season one so there are three or four episodes i believe uh, for those season one season two that you uh you could brush up on if you need to um i say this just so you refresh yourself with how little we definitively know about the first peoples that moved into the americas and even how the exact timing of said migrations is not 100% known or agreed upon. Now, I'm not going to try to rehash that too much here, but I will expand on some of the points I raise in those other episodes uh, shortly. Um, The timeline that this uh, shows is following actually... um, Sorry, the timeline that we're following on this show is... um, is actually covering the transition from the uh, Lithic period or Paleo-Indian period of North America to what is known as the Archaic period. Period. Excuse me. Um, now, this is not a clean division, and different groups entered the Archaic at different times, and some groups kept some of their older Lithic traditions while adapting Archaic customs in other. Uh, aspects or fields uh, of their life or lives I should say and uh, one thing I do want to remind you about uh, dear listener is that the Clovis culture was for many decades considered to be the first peoples into the Americas uh, but that is no longer the consensus among the academic community and I talked about that very much in depth last season Um, now mounting archaeological excuse me mounting archaeological evidence um, DNA studies, um, environmental data, etc., paints a much more complex picture about the peopling of the Americas. 
Of course, uh, many native groups have long held uh, that the Clovis theory uh, was doubtful uh, due to their legends, myths, religious teachings, and oral histories, um, all reckoning time showing that they had lived in this land for longer than when the Clovis appear in the historical record. Uh, the Haida people uh, of the Pacific Northwest even have names for some of their ancestral mothers who lived next to glaciers uh, and have stories of the first pine trees emerging from the ground after the ice retreated. Um, now that being said, like when we spoke about aboriginal oral histories, exact dating with these stories is impossible due to events and peoples sometimes being conflated or merged into each other. Uh, like the Haida, uh, some of those ladies are known as uh, Foam Woman, Snow Woman, um, things like that. So that's probably not a given name. It's probably not something anyone would call you know, a member of your family, uh, at least, uh, you know, in just, you know, casual day-to-day -day contact. Uh, what is most likely is that these, um, that these women are kind of meant to be the amalgamation of their, uh, of where their, uh, groups lived. Uh, there was probably a group that was home in the snow, a group that was a coastal group, and then, uh, of course, they eventually intermarried and, you know, through descent, they would eventually form uh, the larger scale Haida groups. Um, <clears throat> right now, though, uh, the absolute earliest date pus put forward by scientists is 25,000 years ago, and that's an extreme. Um, the peoples who would have made this journey would have come via the sea as the land route through Beringia. Uh, would still have been iced up. There would be no gap in the Laurentide ice sheet between uh, Beringia uh, to go through into North America. Uh, that's still kind of completely iced up at that at that specific period of time. Now, this was uh, crossing the sea via, um, or excuse me, crossing into North America via the sea was done by people at later periods somewhere in the 18,000 to 16,000 year range this is where right before and during the period when there is a land route through the ice sheets so there's no reason to believe that the trip wasn't possible earlier essentially when people are moving through the ice sheets there are still people living and traveling along the coasts there's there's now two routes into north america as opposed to to just the sea route. Now, the only question um, remains uh, is how difficult the journey is due to sea level and weather and temperature and all that. Uh, was it relatively easy? In which case, there could have been a lot of people coming into the Americas at an earlier period. Uh, if it was a difficult trip, it may have been something that was only done seasonally or you know, semi-annually or possibly even only, you know, during a period of great hardship where you, you essentially had to make the journey. Now, I firmly believe that there could have been an even earlier uh, population of peoples coming by the sea route. 
Uh, I think, you know, anywhere as far back as 30,000 years ago, I wouldn't be surprised if we ever found evidence for something like that. Um, But that being said, uh, I think the number of people making these hypothetical journeys would be extremely small. And these Germany and these journeys may not have even been for permanent settlements or habitation. It would have been something that um, was again done seasonally, maybe every few years or maybe you know every uh, every decade or so, uh, if the weather was right, or again if there was if they had to make this journey due to a great need from say pressures in uh, the Beringian region. Of course, sadly, if this did happen, uh, most of the physical evidence for older migrations, including anything before 16,000 years ago, is probably underwater. Um, Anyone wanting to get past the ice sheet uh, would have to have gone by sea, Uh, you know, again, prior to that period, you know, anywhere between 18,000 and 16,000. You know, if you wanted to go before that, you'd have to go by sea. And um, most of the more used and occupied sites would, of course, be coastal in what is now the Pacific Northwestern United States or, you know, far west of Canada. Um, Now, when these ice sheets began to melt and then, you know, the Younger Dryas hit and receded, a lot of this coastline would be flooded. And these floods probably happened fairly frequently. And by the start of our timeline for this season, the coasts of North America are roughly what they are today. Um, but you know that you know that that you know that lasting legacy of floods has to have been imprinted on the people of this region's memory. Um, and this is but one of many environmental changes happening in North America. And these changes are driving the spread of these ancient Americans into new areas of the continent. And also leading them to adopt and create new tools and technologies. Although I should point out that the Pacific Coast was never fully abandoned. Uh, I think there were probably a number of different extended family groups uh, that were survivors of the coastal flooding that probably, you know, retreated decently inland, but they stayed nearby enough and, you know, they would probably feel comfortable to return at least seasonally for fish and other marine, you know, um, game before eventually reverting to a seafaring uh, fishing, hunting, gathering lifestyle once they were reasonably comfortable that uh, these semi-regular floods you know, subsided. And these people were probably fairly well established and very familiar with the land. Uh, so it's very possible that they had a larger populations than any other groups in the Americas, even after flooding. Uh, if, if it had been devastating to their population, they still could have had more people than, say, the groups that are working their way through the gap in the Laurentide ice sheet. And uh, this region across the U.S. and Canada has a very diverse and large number of languages over a relatively smaller area than any other native groups 
to the east with a few maybe ex possible exceptions and uh, always remember that in linguistics the generally uh, generally accepted rule is that uh, areas with more diversity and families of languages are most likely the area that the language has been spoken the longest and there are a number of language families in the area with a high number of diverse subfamilies for each of these larger macro families. Now I'm not going to go into detail on these groups just yet because they're probably not firmly established at this point in our uh, timeline. Um, but I will go over the types of things they were you know, uh, eating to survive how their technology uh, is evolving from, you know, the Paleo-Indian uh, peoples who were first migrated into the region. And just so people are aware, I know uh, Indian is not the standard academic term, but the term Paleo-Indian is still in use for whatever reason. I'm surprised that no one has raised a stink or a fuss about it, but... Um, that is a term that you do still see in a lot of literature. So, uh, again, by 8000 BC, the coastline was close to today's, and the gap that formed the land route through Beringia had expanded, and the ice sheets had retreated, mostly leaving the land open for forests to grow rapidly. And the types of trees growing in the Pacific Northwest are close to what we would see today. And there wasn't as much of a temperature shift as what we see in Britain in this area of North America. Um, it doesn't have that very warm period and then a slightly you know more moderate period that we see in Britain. Uh, in this part of North America, it's typically, uh, as far as I was able to tell, uh, very close to what it is today. And there's no crazy variation uh, period while the forests are emerging. I'm sure that might change later, um, but essentially because the temperature being what it is, um, the types of trees don't really, you know, don't really have a lot of um, differences to what it is today. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm finding my place in my notes again. Um... Of course, uh, okay, here we go, here we go, here we go. Um, by this time, and as the forests are emerging, all the major megafauna on the mainland are dead, with maybe a few small isolated exceptions. Uh, say, for instance, uh, I think there are, and I mentioned this in uh, a couple of episodes, I think, um, actually it was in my Far Cry Primal review, I think I mentioned it too, but there are small isolated areas where mammoths still live in North America um, and they they live uh, to a little bit later not as late as they do uh, in the islands off the coast of Siberia but they do last past this period uh, of American history so the, the 8,000 to 6,000 timeline. There are a few smaller groups that um are still hanging around but they're not being hunted in large numbers because they're probably again isolated on islands um, where humans have not yet begun to move into 
Um, now, of course, this meant that there was a shift in targets uh, uh, that people are hunting. Uh, again, we've seen this in uh, plenty of other areas, uh, but since the large uh, megafauna are not available anymore, uh, the humans begin to switch uh, to things like deer and elk in this region. And of course, you also have things like bears. Uh, I think there are seals as well in the uh, more northerly reaches. Uh, so these animals would, of course, not just provide meat, but also furs and leathers, without which humans could not survive in this region during winter, even if it was, by and large, warmer than it was during the Younger Dryas or that period when the Laurentide Ice Sheet is uh, up and about. And, of course, there's plenty of other smaller game, too. Uh, things like hare, beavers, muskrats, uh, even porcupines. Uh, are you know things that would be hunted, and you also have a wide variety of waterfowl that's expanding, um, and we've seen how this shift into these smaller targets from larger herd animals um, kind of presages the rise of Neolithic bladelets, and this is not different uh, in the Americas. Um, this was of course um, something that we see pretty much everywhere. Um, where there are uh, no longer large mer uh, megafauna, uh, there is a, always a shift to, to these smaller, um, faster projectiles um, that can kill smaller animals easily. Um, and also there are more specialized designs, things like barbed heads uh, to get stuck, or, or if they fall out, they cause a lot of damage, as opposed to those large, powerful, piercing uh, stones. Um, they might, they would still use these in certain situations, I'm sure, for things like um, maybe buffalo. Uh, but by and large, there is a huge shift to, uh, again, the more specialized, smaller bladelets. Um, and of course, uh, all their uh, land and uh, bird hunting would be supplemented by... Um, Marine animals like uh, oysters, uh, clams, salmon, of course, are a big staple in the Pacific Northwest. Um, now, in terms of plant life, you, of course, had nuts and berries. Um, and these would include wild you know, varieties like um, huckleberry, uh, wild strawberries. Uh, but, you know, there are a number of other plants uh, that... Um, that you know uh, would be eaten, uh, things that are ancestors of uh, modern vegetables, wild flowers. Um, you'd have a kind of an example of uh, something close to like a wild asparagus was also something that's very popular. And there are also plants that are contributing not necessarily to the food source, but also to the advancement of technology. Uh, things like uh, reeds, sedges, willows, and other you know, plants uh, that would be used to weave the first baskets in the New World. Uh, and this was something that was independently created in the region, most likely. And this will, of course, lead to some groups in the Americas creating their own textiles. And we also have uh, gourd containers. I know I mentioned... Uh, in one of my plant domestication episodes, uh, but wild 
bottle gourds had spread with humans as they migrated out of Africa. And Asian varieties were brought into the Americas where these were eventually independently domesticated by these ancient uh, Americans. Now, which group in America first made these advancements? We can't say. But they quickly spread throughout the entire continent and then into South America. And uh, the bottle gourd domestication begins right around 8000 B.C. Um, and the earliest evidence we have of basket making is around 7000 B.C. Though I, again, wouldn't be surprised if that skill was older. Uh, it's not easy to find traces of that type of uh, commodity in the archaeological record. Um, but one thing that does show up slightly uh, easier uh, or slightly more often in the archaeological record or at least um, is sturdier and lasts longer in the archaeological record is uh, human remains as opposed to plant remains. And there is one set in particular that is fairly famous uh, for this region and time period. And this is the uh, set of remains known as the Kennewick Man. This man lived around 7,500 to around 7,300 BC, BCE. He was in his middle ages when he died, uh, somewhere around 40 to 55 years of age. Uh, he was between 5'7 and 5'9. Uh, which is 170 to, I think, 177 centimeters. And his body had been found in the uh, in Kennewick, Washington. Uh, that's Washington State. And he had been submerged in kind of the muddy ground near the Columbia River. Uh, his remains, I think, were found by um, um, boaters uh, while they were just traveling in you know, down the river, uh, and because of, you know, just motions from, like, uh, a lot of craft on the river and things like that, uh, his remains had been exposed. Uh, and uh, this was, uh, they were found in 1996. And I think when they initially found them, uh, there were some who thought he might have been as alive as recently as the 19th century. Um, now, when they first examined him, DNA testing was still fairly new, and they either weren't able to find usable DNA, or uh, they just didn't have the technology to test DNA that old yet. Um, now, uh, they examined his skull and bones and tried to figure out his facial features from skull shape and size, and uh, scientifically speaking, this is not always easy and not always accurate. Uh, and then, of course, they did some radiocarbon dating uh, on his remains, and this pushed back uh, the time he was alive, um, or this pushed back uh, when the accepted point of time he lived in. Uh, again, they initially thought he was like from the 19th or 18th century, and then they they tested his remains, and it it pulled it pushed that time period a lot further back. And this had caused a stir because he was thought to be of European descent. Now, once they found out that he was much older, um, a tribe of um, 
a Native American tribe uh, claimed he was uh, an ancestor of theirs, the Umatilla, or the Umatilla, and they wanted to bury his remains. Now, uh, they claimed that he was their ancestor due to the fact that they had historically had the most control over the section of the Columbia River and its plateau uh, where his remains were found. Um, this appeal was rejected because they couldn't prove that he was related to them via artifacts. And there were other tribes that have had lived in the area or close to the area. Um, and uh, there were no there were no real artifacts I think found with him that could be you know tied to any one native group, and you know given his age that's not surprising. Um, while I think the groups that have lived in that area for a while, you know their technology is you know and their cultural artifacts probably you know descended somewhere along the line from the kind of artifacts. Uh, the Kennewick man's people were creating, um, again, you have a couple of thousand years of evolution and um, creativity to go through before um, they would be you know, truly identical or similar. Um, <clears throat> now, of course, as time progressed, more refined tests placed him at the first date I mentioned. Um, because I think that initial uh, radiocarbon test actually had him about a couple of thousand years older than what I said, but the most recent, the most precise testing, again, has him living between 7,500 and 7,300. Uh, and then, you know, this testing uh, also led to uh, another team of anthropologists examining the bones, and they thought that they looked very similar to uh, the Ainu of ancient Japan and the similarity of the Ainu tools and the early uh, Beringian populations and some DNA tests have increased the popularity of the theory that uh, the Ainu and Native Americans have a common ancestry. Now, um, the specific testing for the Kennewick man um, was eventually done after you know, methods of obtaining older DNA uh, were refined. Uh, I think they began a genetic study of him uh, in 2013, and they, you know, this was a long process. And after two years of analysis, he was found to be most closely related to, of course, modern Native Americans, though he could not be firmly identified as an ancestor of any one modern group. So in 2016, uh, U.S. Congress passed legislation to return his main his remains to um, an amalgamation of groups that had historical claims on the land, including the Umatilla, uh, the Yakama, the Nez Perce, and another you know a bunch of other uh, smaller groups. Now, of course, um, these uh, these coastal groups that uh, the Kennewick Man. Uh, was a part of, or at least related to, um, had probably, of course, traded, fought, intermarried, inter, excuse me, intermarried with each other. Also, they would have done this with their Beringian neighbors in the past, uh, 
And then they would do the same with the various Clovis-related neighbors uh, that moved uh, to the east of the Rockies once the ice sheets had melted. And make no mistake, while the Clovis group were not the first Native Americans, almost every Native group in the Americas has at least some relation to the Clovis culture, uh, genetically speaking. And I say almost only because some groups in the U.S. are very wary of large-scale studies done by the government or academics uh, due to past experiences uh, with said institutions. And, you know, uh, thus, we while we don't have definitive confirmation, uh, you know how closely related everyone is to the Clovis group. Um, I would be stunned if there was no relation at all for any group. Uh, now, of course, large-scale travel and trade between the Pacific Northwest and Great Plains would not really take hold until later, uh, due again to the difficulty of travel through the Rocky Mountains. But it did happen. Uh, again, probably not in any large amount or any large scale, but it would be something that, that would be done. And it's possible that they had uh, met um, uh, north of the Rockies. Um, you know, close groups had occupied um, all of the Great Plains as far as the Canadian side of the 49th parallel, which is the modern border with the U.S., and as far south as uh, northern Mexico. So it's possible they could have essentially gone uh, around the Rockies instead of through them. Um, you know, basically daisy chain trading, you know, through that way. Uh, now, if you wanted to travel through, um, you know, basically that the area that the Clovis were occupying you know, it's a it's a huge area. So if you wanted to do any kind of travel or trade um, with you know any neighbors, ours are they're related to the Clovis too. So by occupying such a large range or traveling such a large range, uh, the Clovis you know ingratiated themselves or um, maybe not necessarily ingratiated, but they definitely had impacts on other groups that may have not been related to them, uh, at least directly at these early stages. They're, you know, um, but due to their, you know, um, due to how far their artifacts have been found uh, all around the country and the continent as a whole, you could definitely see that they had a lot of influence. Now, what exactly that influence was is hard to say, um, but it can't be denied that you know the Clovis are like the first group that has had like a, a continent-wide influence of Native Americans. There are, of course, smaller regional groups and um, all that kind of stuff, but uh, the Clovis technologies and tool creation um definitely the most uh influential at the end of the paleo-indian or lithic period um by our timeline though um the groups that you know practice the clovis tool making traditions had split from each other they all developed new techniques and then there were some groups that, of course, split from those splinter groups, and they developed their own techniques. Um, and this is all happening, you know, even as 
even before our timeline starts. Um, I know that we know one group, uh, or there is a name for one breakaway Clovis group uh, known as the Folsom group. I talked about them as in, in a previous episode. Um, but they're just one of the successor groups to the Clovis people. And by our timeline, by 8000 BC, um, there is probably no remnant culture that you know that uses the Clovis technique still. They've all developed their own traditions, um, you know, based on where they live, what they're hunting for, um, you know, environmental factors, all, all kind of all those kind of things. But before I get too focused on talking about these successors, there is one more development taking place at the very end of this season, right around 6000 BC. And this is, again, focusing on the northwest of the North American continent. And this is the arrival of the Alouette peoples on what will become known as the Aleutian Islands of Alaska. These peoples are the ancestors of not only the modern Alouette, but also the Yupik, Inuit, and other North American tribes living in the far north and Arctic regions. Uh, and of course, we will talk about them more later uh, once they begin to spread and occupy these uh, extreme uh, northerly uh, latitudes. Um, but again, that's not happening just yet because they're just making it to the Aleutian Islands, uh, from Asia right around 6,000 BC. Uh, they're probably either traveling into this region because they have been forced out from those groups, um, that we talked about, um, in the Asian episodes as they are expanding or maybe, uh, they uh, you know, they uh, had been pushed out uh, from uh, their homeland because they there was not enough resources to support their population. They could have been moving to find uh, more uh, fertile or at least more uh, dependable uh, food sources. So it's really hard to say why they moved out of um, Asia to the Aleutian Islands at this period, but we know it did happen. Um, now, to go back to the uh, the, the um, Indians of the Plains, uh, or the I guess the, the groups east of the Rockies, we'll go ahead and start focusing on those now. Uh, specifically in the American Southwest and uh, Mexico's Northwest. Now, uh, there was actually much more regular rainfall there uh, at that time than there is now. Uh, of course, these days it is mostly a desert with uh, just a few uh, feet of rain, or a few inches of rain every year if they're lucky. And, of course, you know, that leads to seasonal flooding um, for a very brief period. But uh, at the time we're talking about, uh, you're getting more rain. It's probably not foresty. It's not enough to have, like, a large-scale forest. But, it, you know, it is basically an extension of the Great Plains. There's some grasslands, shrublands, that kind of thing. 
Um, and like others, they're shifting to use, again, these smaller Neolithic bladelets for their hunting weapons. Um, their food sources are similar to the Pacific Coast groups, uh, probably minus the elk, uh, and they have less bears, but they do have antelope in addition to deer. They also have uh, less fish and waterfowl, but they do have other types of birds, uh, small rodents, hare, and you know things like that. But they also have uh, fairly large lizards and reptiles to consume, um, heel monsters, that sort of thing. Uh, and there are also buffalo that move seasonally uh, through this uh, large plain uh, in the center of the North American continent. Now, uh, this is, again, something that's happening in the southwest and also uh, to the north and east as well. Now, this is before the days of horseback riding. Uh, this does Horses don't get to North America until much later. Uh, so, all hunting of buffalo had to be done on foot. And this led to two primary methods of hunting these very large, uh, aggressive animals. Uh, these things are, again, you know, 2,000 pounds uh, fully grown, I believe. So, uh, it's not something you're just going to run up and take a stab at. Um, and these methods are probably not that radical in terms of um, hunting, at least in terms of uh, larger herds. Uh, this is probably something that you know, they had continued even uh, when they were hunting things like mammoth and uh, that kind of animal. Um, but it is something that they can continue to do with the buffalo because they still remain. Whereas, of course, the, the other megafauna uh, have gone extinct, uh, at least by the end of our timeline uh, in this region. But the two methods they have, they developed, are known as uh, buffalo impound and buffalo jump. Now, um, you can probably guess what is involved uh, with these methods just from the name. Um, a buffalo jump, essentially, you know, you try to lure a herd of bison or drop, you know, over a cliff or, you know, a high hill somewhere that they will either fall to their death or be injured enough in the fall that, you know, it makes it a lot easier to kill them. And this is a, probably something that they would do with larger spears. Uh, the smaller uh, lithic, uh, neolithic um, tool blade, bladelets are probably not in use for these animals. They're probably still having to use larger, uh, stronger, heavier spears to, to pierce uh, buffalo uh, flesh and hide and all that kind of stuff. Um, Then the other method is, uh, of course, the buffalo impound. Uh, essentially, you know, they would uh, try to lure the bison into uh, a corral built of wood. Uh, if they're in an area with there's no any, you know, not any kind of like steep um, cliffs or hills or anything like that. Uh, essentially, they would, um, you know, once they were in this wood impound, uh, they would be. Um, they would be uh, targeted at range, um, you know, with uh, things like um, 
uh, spears, uh, rocks, uh, bows and arrows at later periods, um, because they would essentially create a wall, again, with that timber, not just to uh, corral the bison, but also to give themselves enough height to kind of throw their projectiles down into the bison. Uh, so they would create like a little, you know, uh, essentially a, uh, a shoot for themselves. And I mean that like a, a um, C-H-U-T-E shoot. Um, and it could be a very long, long shoot. We're talking, you know, the size of an American football field, 100 yards. Uh, now, of course, all of these types of hunting require, um, you know, a high deal of coordination. Uh, you know, you have to have teamwork. You'd have to have planning. Uh, and again, these are these are things that would have to have happened again during megafauna hunting's you know in generations prior um but it is it is not a skill that seems to ever go away uh in you know uh in this region <clears throat> and it's entirely likely that um a number of different communities or bands would join together to perform this and this would be done some done seasonally as a uh, buffalo kind of move into and out of the region and i'm sure there are some groups that do you know follow the buffalo uh you know year round if they could or at least most of the year but there are also some groups that you know they would take the opportunity kill what they needed uh get all the hides the meat all that kind of stuff and you know then they would go somewhere else uh, probably to hunt different types of animal collect different uh different materials that they would need that kind of thing um and just uh, if people are wondering, maybe uh, again, you know, two thousand, you know, a two thousand pound animal. Um, if you could kill fifty of them, say, um, you could have as much as twenty thousand pounds of meat to be cured, uh, stored, that kind of thing. Um, and that's not just, of course, meat. It is also skins, bone, which is still a popular tool for making your uh, material for making tools and weapons uh, bone and stone of course are you know always in use in North America uh, <clears throat> uh, also uh, there is another uh, invention uh, that we do have uh, that shows up in the American Southwest uh, during uh, the start of our time period. And that is the invention of the atlatl or spear thrower. Uh, we've talked about these before. Um, now, of course, there are older examples of the atlatl, but in the Americas, uh, this appears to have been independently um, created uh, by these people um, as a kind of a, a precursor probably to uh, the bow and arrow, or at least as a supplement to the bow and arrow. But this is the oldest example in the Americas. Uh, it was found in the American Southwest. I think it was, um, I don't know if they have the specific group, but it was probably someone uh, that uh, lived in the Sonora Desert region uh, of the American Southwest, I believe. 
and this spread quickly. Um, if if these hunters didn't, or if these uh, peoples from the American Southwest did not spread it themselves, uh, it was something that was quickly invented by another uh, by a number of groups close by. This this spreads across um, all of North and South America very quickly after uh, after it shows up that first time in the historical or in the archaeological record. Um, <clears throat> trying to see what else. Oh, also, um, they have found mummies in the Lahontan Basin in Nevada. Um, this is a um, and this is done deliberately. Uh, these people um, obviously had a very uh, ritualized uh, sense of burial uh, and honoring the dead. Um, I tried to get some specifics on these mummies, but I could not find a good source um, with a lot of you know indiv- individual information. Essentially, it's just these people were mummified around 7,000 BC, uh, and this is something that you will continue to see in this region from a number of different groups. Um, they all have very elaborate um, uh, death and burial rituals. Um, uh, and of course, other regions develop these as well. But this is the appears to have the oldest, um, you know, example of organized, um, you know, a burial or a ritual that is outside of just burying someone with their, you know, some type of tools or possessions. Uh, the mummification is a very deliberate and uh, planned out process. This is something that's uh, much more in depth what you see from neighboring groups at this time of course later um this changes and other groups in other regions have you know equally elaborate as rituals um but uh i just think it's uh an interesting fact that they they developed their own form of mummification here uh at this early date oh let's see uh was that uh I think that this is kind of what I wanted to talk about for this week. Um, I, I yeah, so I think this is a good place to stop for now. Um, we'll have another bonus episode or two next week, uh, and then we'll be back to our regular history episodes in November, um, where we'll continue talking about the Americas and. Um, you know, once we're done with that, we're on to next season. Um, I did want to do, um, just in case, I'll go ahead and say it now because I was thinking about it as I was talking. Um, we're talking about groups, you know, at 8,000, 6,000. Uh, but by this point time, uh, humans are everywhere in North and South America. I'll be going over the various regions, you know, in the next couple of episodes. But, um... They've essentially had 10,000 years after the Laurentide Ice Sheet opened up to get everywhere in the Americas. And, of course, different regions um, are more heavily occupied than others. Uh, But, um, yeah, we'll go into a little bit more detail on some of the groups in the American Southwest, I think, next week. And then we'll talk about groups... um, East as well. I'll essentially finish up North America uh, and you know Canada, 
U.S., Mexico, those countries, uh, Central America, and then we'll we'll go to South America afterwards. But um, yeah, so the entirety of America is occupied at this point. Um, have been for at least a couple of thousand years uh, by the start of our timeline. Also, um, I mentioned last season, I forget which episode, but uh, there was a very interesting paper about a uh, mammoth that had been found uh, near San Diego, I believe, uh, called the Cerruti Mammoth, if you'd like to Google it and read about it. Um, Essentially, there is evidence that the mammoth was butchered, uh, and the mammoth is extremely old, uh, 100,000 years old. now, there was, of course, criticism of that dating, um, but there was a response to that criticism, uh, and people are still talking about it, debating it. If that mammoth was butchered by some type of hominid at 100,000 BC, it was not Homo sapiens. Um, it was either a Neanderthal or a Denisovan that probably crossed over into the Americas um, from Asia in the same way that Homo sapiens did, just at a much earlier date. And if it was hominids and they got to America, um, either they left the Americas or it was such a small group, um, they made almost no impact, archaeologically speaking. Uh, I doubt they would have lasted long if they... Yeah, if it was a small enough group, they might have had enough numbers to reproduce, that sort of thing. So, uh, it's hard to say. Again, that's still being debated, but that is something I have been keeping an eye on. It's a very interesting story, um, but we'll, we'll, of course, see. So, But yeah, I'd like to thank you all for joining me. I hope you've liked this episode. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to reach out to me at... Uh, my email, uh, waradrevpod at gmail.com. You can direct message me on Twitter slash X, or you can comment on any of my YouTube videos. Um, uh, almost to 100 subscribers on YouTube. I think we're under 20 away as of now. Um, trying to get to 500. That lets us uh, get some monetization. Uh, not that I'm doing this for any kind of monetary purpose. I'm doing this for fun. I'm going to do it regardless. Um, but it would be nice uh, to maybe uh, have a little bit of money to invest back in the show. Uh, but uh, regardless, I hope you all enjoyed. I hope you'll continue to listen. If you have any questions or feedback or constructive criticism, I am more than happy to hear it. I would love to hear it. Uh, so please let me know. Um But yeah, thank you all for joining me this week. I hope you have a good rest of your day and rest of your week. Thank you so much. Goodbye.